So far in this class, we have mainly looked at the doctrinal aspects of the church regarding who we are as the people of God and the attributes, the worship, the history, the marks, the purpose, the hope of the church, as well as how the church and culture relate. And now this morning, beginning with this morning and working through the rest of this month, which will take us to the end of the class, uh, we're going to focus a little more practically in on what does it look like as we gather together as God's people? What is our role toward one another? And we're going to start by looking at first the foundation that we have of, with this fellowship in Christ and therefore the fellowship that we have with one another. So we want to look here at what is the goal that we have? What is God's goal for us when we come together as his people? What's the purpose behind this? I want to think about this by looking at what God's Word teaches us about spiritual fellowship. So you can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 10 together. So, Will, if I could ask you to read verses 1 through 4, and then, Joy, if you can take verses 5 through 10. Thank you. So, what we're going to look at from this chapter are two things and two questions specifically that we want to answer, and you'll see those on your note sheet there. First is, what is spiritual fellowship? And then two, what is the goal of spiritual fellowship? So, first, what is spiritual fellowship? Um, as many of you are probably aware here, the Greek word translated as fellowship in both verses 3 and 7 is the word koinonia. Uh, That word we see being used throughout Scripture, meaning communion, partnership. These are the ways that you'll see it translated. Communion, partnership, participation in something, and a sharing in something. Okay, So you'll see those words being used all to refer to this Greek word koinonia. In verse 3, you'll notice it's used of our communion with God the Father and the Son. And then in verse 7... It's used of our fellowship or communion with each other. I think uh, the Bidi Anyabwile gives a helpful two-part definition to what spiritual fellowship is by saying that it's first experienced personally, and then secondly, it is shared relationally within the church. Okay, so it's experienced personally by believing the truth, and it's also shared relationally in the church. So I kind of want to break those two down under that first point there. It's experienced personally. John tells us here initially of this mysterious reality that we have, that he and others have personally encountered. Notice he starts off here and he says, that which was from the beginning. Now it's unclear when you begin reading this what the that is that John is referring to here, but what we know from it is that we see its antiquity. In other words, it's old. It's either existed from the beginning or before the beginning. It's something that the apostle and the others sensed and experienced. And notice that John uses here four clauses 
to describe this experience. He says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. And in these four descriptions, you have this increasing intimacy that John and the other apostles had with this that, whatever the that may be. And we're going to see shortly what, it, what that is. Okay, so this experience moves from first something that John heard about to something that he himself had seen and has now become an eyewitness of. And something not just looked at, but studied and observed. Okay, so that's what you have going on here. This aspect of we've heard about it, we've seen it, we've looked upon it. So there's an intensity that shifts just from a a seeing to a looking upon. That looking upon is an intense study, a scrutinizing of something. But then he goes even further than that. He says, but it's actually something that we've touched. And what is the that that John writes about hearing and seeing and touching? What has he experienced so fully and completely and personally? Well, at the end of verse 1, it's described as the word of life, which gets clarified a bit further in verse 2 as the eternal life. So John says he has handled and experienced life itself. This life, as we all know, is referring to Jesus. It was Jesus who was manifested, who was with the Father, and who came to humanity by taking on human flesh himself. John and others saw this life manifest in the flesh. They experienced the transforming power of coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the eternal life, the very essence and source of life. Now, none of us have had the privilege of experiencing exactly what John and the other apostles experienced in their relationship to Christ despite what some people might say today. Okay? We didn't hear him while he was on earth. We didn't look upon him while he was here. We didn't touch him. But one thing we all do have in common is that we have come to have fellowship with him when we, like John and the other apostles, were brought out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is the same. If you are in Christ you have personally experienced the resurrection power of being brought from death to life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So while we may not have had the opportunity, like John and the other apostles, to, to see him, to hear him physically while he was here on this earth, all of us have personally come to experience who Christ is through being made alive by his Spirit. Now, that spiritual fellowship that we now have with the Father and with the Son is not to just be personally experienced. Right? That's not the end of it. It's just, I just have had this personal experience and that's all there is. It's also to be shared relationally within the church. That's what you see here in verse 3. Notice John says, that which we have seen and heard, what do we do? We proclaim also to you. So that, so there's purpose here, you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So listen, we are brought individually to Christ, but we are also brought into His body, that is, the church. And we now have fellowship with one another because of the fellowship that we have with Him. We'll touch on this a little bit more later on. Now, just for a point of clarification here, I want you to know why this is being referred to as spiritual fellowship. By spiritual, we don't mean that this fellowship is not real, or that it's not physical, or that we can't touch it, or that it's less important. It's not this ethereal, subjective thing that's just kind of floating out there, and we're like, yeah, we have fellowship with that, you know. In fact, it's more real than the physical things we see in this world, which are here today and gone tomorrow. By spiritual fellowship, what we mean is that fellowship that does not rely on the flesh for its existence. It's not limited by physical space and time. For example, John is not present with the recipients of this letter. And yet he writes of a fellowship that they share with him. And that is because they are connected through a timeless, eternal God who has brought them into this fellowship. In fact, 
this fellowship is stronger and more profound and longer lasting than even blood ties. Right? It's not a temporary. My physical fellowship with my family members will end at some point. Right? It's limited to that space and time. But my fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ will never end. That will continue to go on. And I believe what John is getting at here is the very reason why so many of us, I've heard so many testimonies of people saying, man, it was like, you know, I met this guy at a conference and I felt like I've known him my whole life. It was just immediately I connected with this person. And Well, the same spirit that is in us is the same spirit that is in them. And so immediately we have a connection with people. People you didn't even know, you know, ten minutes ago, you know, ten minutes later, you're like, wow, man, let me get your number, your email, I want to stay in contact, this is encouraging, and you become lifelong friends with these, with these people. And that's because of the fellowship that we have through the Spirit. You're coming from different backgrounds, different cultures, all kinds of different things, and yet what you have in common is what ties you together. So that's very important. So John is saying here that the apostles have preached this message not for individual conversion alone. They didn't simply preach for a new you necessarily, but a new us. A collection of redeemed people bought from sin and the judgment of God to be made, as Peter says, and as we have looked at previously in this class, a new and royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God. And this is a staggering reality of what God has brought us into as his people. This fellowship that will never end. And I was you know, just thinking about the practical implications of that. Why it is that Paul in his letter to the Thessalonians can say to them, Yes, we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. Right? So, believers were dying... And the Thessalonians were discouraged about this. And Paul's saying, we don't, we don't grieve. We do grieve, but not like that. We grieve like those with hope. That we recognize that in Christ, there really aren't any goodbyes, are there? They're just seeing a bit. Right? And then the continuation of that. So our fellowship, even with those who have gone before us, who are in Christ, hasn't ceased. Maybe that fellowship that we could have one another with here on this earth, but that tie has not been broken. Right? It's just been temporarily put on pause until we're reconnected. But all of us are still in Christ. You know, when we die, we're still going to be in Christ as much as the people who are here on this earth. So there will still be a union that we have with one another. This is why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 says, Think of all the saints that have gone before you. Right, This great cloud of witnesses, there's a union that you have with them. There's fellowship in a sense. Now, we're not speaking with them, so don't run with this and start thinking some crazy thoughts here. Okay, No, we're not talking with them. We're not going that route. But I really appreciated the way Paul addressed this. So turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4. And I want you to think through this and think about the fellowship that Paul seeks to drive home into the heart of the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. Corrine, can I have you read that for us? 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. So there's the hope that we have, right? This resurrection that is forthcoming, 
will bring us into, back into fellowship with those who have gone, gone before us. So, Paul says, yes, there is grief, and it's real, and it's deep, but it's not without hope for those who are in Christ. And notice he uses this language of fellowship here. I'm just going to read through this here, starting at verse 14. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up, notice this, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord, and therefore with one another. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Right, so this fellowship that we have is deep and real and more real than any other fellowship that we have with any other people on this earth. Okay? So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about that spiritual fellowship, that union that we have with Christ, first and foremost, and therefore with one another. Okay? All right, second, I want to look at now what is the goal of this spiritual fellowship? Back in 1 John here, we see that there are two goals that he lays out for us. The first one we see in verse 4. Back in 1 John, verse 4. Des, can you read that? Okay, good. So, there's, there's a purpose there. We're writing these things so that, there's a purpose behind our writing, our joy may be complete. Some translations say your joy, but I think the, the, the mindset here is that not only the apostles' joy, but the joy of both the apostles and those who are being written to. So we write these things so that our or your joy may be complete. So joy is the first goal of our spiritual fellowship that John refers to here. Now, I want you to think through this as well. Another passage that alludes to this is found in Philippians 1. Keep your place in 1 John and turn to Philippians 1. A lot is brought out in this passage uh, in verse 21. That typically is kind of the highlight. But I want you to see Paul's thought process here. So we're going to read verses 21 through 25. Philippians 1, 21 through 25. And Mike, if I can ask you to read that, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, Philippians 1, verses 21 through 25. Okay, don't miss verse 25. As Paul's going through this dilemma of, man, I'd really like to depart and be with Christ. That's going to be far better. It's more necessary for me to stay here with you. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. For what purpose? For your progress and joy in the faith. Don't miss that. Not just your progress in the faith, your progress and joy in the faith. In the faith. That's why Paul is laboring here. So both John and Paul refer to this aspect of joy being a goal of our fellowship. Now back in 1 John, he says that we proclaim this message to you so that that joy would be complete. Which means to be filled out, to be swelled with fullness. So that nothing would be lacking in our experience of joy, and that you know, this really is an incredible reality that the Son of God took on flesh, that life Himself entered the world, and 
was abused and pierced and hung on a cross, slaughtered, buried, and then raised from death for our joy in him. This is what the scriptures teach. To look at Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. And uh, Don, can you read that? Okay, what a great passage that is. Christ endured the cross for the joy set before him. The joy of completing his Father's will so that a multitude that no man can number will join around his throne with joyful praise for all of eternity. That's an amazing reality that we have here. This is a deep-rooted joy that we have been given and that we need to consistently remind each other of. It's not, it's not a light joy that just kind of ebbs and flows, right? It's not a plastic smile, right, concealing a broken heart that feels the weight of the trials of this life. No, it's a, it's a blood-bought joy. It's the kind of joy that Paul writes about in Romans 8.18 and 2 Corinthians 4.17. Sonia, can you read that? Just Romans 8.18, if you could take that. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Dave, can you take 2 Corinthians 4.17? Okay, that's an awesome definition of joy right there. It's, it's, it's not... You know, everything's great, the sun is shining, the flowers are blooming, right? I don't have any trials in my life. No, it's in the midst of deep, deep affliction. And the Apostle Paul, when you read through his testimony of what he has gone through, and yet he can look at these things in light of what is coming and say the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Right? What, what we have been promised in Christ will make this life seem incomparable. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us. So, don't, don't miss that. Paul said, no, that's not just God is putting us through affliction just for the affliction in and of itself. It's actually preparing us for something. Suffering is working for our Glory that we will be entering into soon. I don't know how all of that works, but I trust the Word of God that it's going to be glorious when we enter into that. And so for Paul to be able to write this, this light momentary affliction, when you get into chapter 11 and you read his testimony, you're thinking to yourself, how, Paul, how can you describe this as a light momentary affliction? Right? It's only because of what it is in comparison to. This eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. There's nothing to even compare it to. And so Paul uses that light momentary affliction and he compares that with eternal weight of glory. You see that? Momentary, eternal, light versus weighty, affliction versus glory. Have those things pinned up against each other, and Paul says it's not even comparable what we were into. So it's not like, man, the glory is just going to etch out the affliction that we dealt with in this life. And I was just like, oh, okay, that was worth it, man. We just—it was like fifty-one forty-nine. Just, just got over the the hump there, right? Just Paul has this mentality that it's, and I think I've said this in the past. It, it, he has this mentality: don't even bring it to the scale to be weighed to compare it. 
Right? It, it's not even worth, well, let's put the affliction over here and the glory over here. And listen, by no means am I trying to minimize affliction. I'm just trying to point you to what the scriptures are saying. They're saying it's not worth comparing with the glory that we're going to enter into. And so if we're thinking, let me weigh this affliction versus the glory, Paul says, don't even bring it to the scale. It's incomparable. What we're about to enter into, what we've been promised in Christ. And those of us who are in Christ, you've tasted it to some degree here in this life. That longing, that joy that comes from knowing Christ. It's also the kind of joy that looks at suffering for Christ and rejoices to be counted worthy to suffer for his name. Okay, Acts 5.41. Margaret, if you can read that. Okay, so that's strange. These, these, are, these are totally foreign, right? Only the Spirit of God can produce this type of reaction in the heart of God's people. Nobody looks at suffering and says, man, I praise God, unless the Spirit of God is working in your life to be able to see the glory and majesty of Christ and say, man, I count it a privilege to suffer for Christ. It's the kind of joy that we desire to see growing amongst each one of us, isn't it? The kind that Jesus referred to in Matthew 13 that sells everything for the one pearl of great price and the treasure hidden in the field. Let's take a look at this. Marilyn, if you wouldn't mind reading that, Matthew 13. Okay, now that, that's a very powerful passage there, isn't it? Then, so he, here it is, he finds this treasure. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It has in mind the same mentality that Paul referred to in Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 4. It's not, again, this weighing and saying, okay, all that I have over here versus the treasure hidden in a field, Man, all right, I'm going to sell it. Man, praise God, here, here it all is. You're selling, yeah, I'm selling everything. I, I want that. So then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He, he recognizes, Paul recognizes what Jesus is referring to here in Matthew 13. It's this incomparable reality of what we have been given and what we are about to enter into. It is also the type of joy that looks to Jesus and finds satisfaction in Him alone. And the type of joy that breaks the pull of lesser, temporary, and deceitful pleasures that this world brings to us. I don't know about you, but I fight that on a daily basis. Right? This world coming at me saying that this is better. Right? That they're called deceitful pleasures for a reason. Amen? They, they don't produce what they promise. Okay? And so how does that happen? It happens as you're more satisfied in Christ, and the more satisfied you are in Him, that is what breaks the pull of this, the things of this world. As the old hymn goes, I'm going to try to remember it, <laughs> in the light, help me out here, in the light of His glorious grace, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Yes, thank you. The things of earth shall grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Right? So it's in the light of His glory and grace that the things of this world grow dimmer. Right? So we're, we're asking God, help us in our fellowship together to constantly point one another. So when we come together as the people of God, we desire to see that joy grow by loving one another and constantly pointing one another to the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. Right? Our prayer, congregationally, ought to be that which was uttered by the psalmist in Psalm 27, 4. And a forest, you can read that, please. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in Amen. Right? That, that should be our prayer, congregationally. Right? Listen. 
there's all types of different requests. In fact, as we prayed at the beginning of this lesson, God tells us, cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. So there's more than one thing that we're coming to God with to ask him to, to work in our lives. And yet the psalmist breaks it down here and he just says, but there's one thing that exceeds all of them. And this one thing I ask for, and it's the, this one thing that I'm going to seek after, and it's this, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. For what purpose? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple, to meditate in His temple, to think upon the glory and the majesty of who He is. So, this is where true joy will be found amongst us. And this should be our passion at one of our goals when we come together as God's people. is not to minimize the trials and sufferings that are going in our, on in our lives, but to constantly be reminding one another of the greatness and the majesty of the glory that we will enter into and in that which we have been given now. Okay, so joy is one goal of our spiritual fellowship. The second one that John refers to here is the goal of holiness. And I want to just say at the outset that these two go together. They're not necessarily distinct from one another. To be holy is to be joyful. Now, you can have an appearance of holiness, like the Pharisees, and know nothing of joy. But you cannot truly know the joy of the Lord without being holy. This is what John is saying here in verses 5 through 10. So let's read through those once more. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So in these verses, John gives these five if-then statements, alternating between three negative statements that deny certain claims and two positive statements that confirm or agree with the truth. Now, the three negative statements flat-out deny that a person can have fellowship with God and live an unholy or sinful life. You see this in verses 6, 8, and 10. Deborah, can you just read verses 6, 8, and 10 for us so we can see these three negative statements? Okay, good. Now these... Verses probably seem pretty clear to us, and they should, but we must understand that John, when, when he was writing this, it was at a time when people claimed that the body was evil and the spirit was good. So it didn't matter what you did with your body because your spirit would remain clean regardless. There's this distinction that was being made, a heresy. Some even claimed that they were without sin and perfect before God, not only in position as we are in Christ, but also in practice as well. That there's no sin remaining. So John is writing to refute that, and unfortunately that heresy hasn't completely dissipated from the evangelical scene. There are many today who profess the name of Christ that live like it doesn't matter what is done in our bodies because we stand righteous before God through Christ alone. Now, while it is true that we do stand righteous before God through Christ alone, if we are truly righteous, it will manifest itself in progressive holiness, not progressive sinfulness. In other words, darkness and light cannot coexist. And you see John returning to this truth throughout this letter again and again. For example, look with me at, at chapter 2 and look at verses 9, 11, and 15 where you see this being referred to. Okay? 
Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay, so you see these things happening, and then you see it even more clearly when you flip over into chapter 3. I'm going to pick up here verses 4 through 10. And I don't know if I've had the opportunity. Sharon, Sharon, would you mind reading verses 4 through 10? Sure. Thank you. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sin, and and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Okay, good. So you see it very clearly there, right? That that practice of sin or that practice of righteousness, right? If a person is truly born of God, they won't continue in a sinful pattern of life. They'll be fighting against that sin, but they won't just keep going along with it, right? There will be a fight against it. There will be a longing for righteousness, a practice of righteousness that will be taking taking place here. Okay, so John's showing these, how these two things can't coexist with each other. You're either practicing righteousness or you're practicing lawlessness. Now, there is a responsibility that we have toward one another in this process. So when we think about our fellowship with one another, this is one of the benefits of being with the body of Christ, right? We can help each other grow into the image of the Son. Look at Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13. Jess, if you can read that once you get there. Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13. Okay, right? So here's this aspect. Take care that there's not any unbelieving heart among you, leading you to fall away from God. But then here's the responsibility. Here's the corporate responsibility. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, what was the issue with in the, in the book of Hebrews? It was departing from Christ. It was not seeing the sufficiency of Christ. It was a constant look at Him. And that's what we're to do in our fellowship together is we're constantly pointing one another back to the sufficiency and the glory and the majesty of Christ. Okay, so there's a responsibility that we have corporately to one another in this respect. Okay? All right, go back to 1 John with me. I want you to look at these two positive statements that are made here. What are we to do if we recognize there is sin and darkness in our lives? I'm sure nobody battles with that, probably, right? You don't really ever see any sin in your lives or darkness or anything, right? We would be lying and the truth would not be in us if we affirm that. Okay. Verses 7 and 9 show us what we are to do. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Okay, so there's a statement. Now notice verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what you see John saying here is that denial of our sin leads to darkness and ultimately to death. But confession leads 
to life and light through the blood of Jesus. And notice that God says that when we confess, we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus from, in verse 7, all sin, and then in verse 9, all unrighteousness. Not some, not most, but all. As one of the songs goes that we, we sing here at Faith, there is no sin that I have done that has such height or depth. It can't be washed in Jesus' blood or covered by his death. We recognize that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that is the, the fellowship that we have with one another as well. Right? There's confession taking place amongst us. If we confess our sins, if we agree with God that we have sinned and that we continue to fight against that sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of that sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And listen, that is the most wonderful news in all the world. Amen? God is faithful, which means he will continuously do it. And he's also just. Why? Because Christ has paid for our sins. So he's just in that sense. We, we ask, please forgive me for that. I confess that to you. It was wrong. And God says, you're forgiven. Why? Because Christ has died in your place already. That's how I can forgive you on the basis of what my son has done on your, on your behalf. So the one who turns from his or her sins to God through faith in Jesus turns, listen, to a God who keeps his promise to forgive based on the work of his son. He will continue to do this over and over and over and over again until that day we stand complete in Him. And that is great news for sinners like us. Amen? So we've set out to answer those two questions. What is spiritual fellowship? And then what is the goal of it? And I believe we've answered those from this passage in 1 John. And now with the the few minutes that we have remaining here, um, I just want to bring to your attention one aspect that I think would be very beneficial for us if we are to see spiritual fellowship flourish amongst us. And that is this. We have to stop thinking of our Christian life as individual and private and have a good understanding of what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. Again, listen, it's true that while we enter the faith individually and personally, we must realize that God has brought us into a body whose members live and thrive by being first connected to the head, but also being interdependent on one another. <clears throat> I think the scriptures are clear that those who try to live the Christian life apart from the fellowship of God's people seriously hinder the progress of their own relationship with God, but also the relationship of others with God. We're not meant to live independently. Okay? We will make ourselves vulnerable and weak and tired because we're trying as one person to replace what God has meant to happen in the community of the saints. We need each other, amen? Right? God has designed it that way, that we would need each other. And yet in our hearts, in our flesh... There is always a spirit of independence rising up. Saying, I can do this on my own. I don't need help. I've got this. And that's not the way that God has ordained it. He's ordained it that we would be interdependent upon one another. That is how he works. I believe this is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 12. So let's go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's see if we can drop to the back there. Preston, would you mind reading verses 14 through 20? And then, Jen, can you take verses 21 through 27? Where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were in here, where would be the sense of 
smell. But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So none of us can say to the other, I have no need of you. An amazing statement, right? What, what, every one of us, right? So God has brought us together as the body of Christ here at faith. Every one of us can learn and be used to help others in each other's life, right? This is how God works. All of us are necessary toward one another. None of us can say, I have no need of you. We're not the body of Christ on our own. You're a member and a necessary member of the body of Christ, dependent on the other parts for proper, healthy growth as a body. So let's, let's kind of close that thought here, this aspect of being interdependent on one another by reading one more passage here, Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 16. And I'll go ahead and and read this as we're just kind of running short on time here. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What a great passage that is. Again, Paul drives home the necessity of our interdependence upon one another, especially there in verse 16. As by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. Right? So we have to divorce ourselves from that individual mindset that what am I going to get as I go into church today and think, what can I give as a member of the body of Christ? How can I be used to be a blessing to my brothers and sisters? And listen, we've all, we've all experienced that. You go to be a blessing and indeed you are blessed. Amen? It's mutual. There's mutual edification that takes place. So, to c- conclude here, true spiritual fellowship will take place as the Word of God is faithfully taught and spoken to each other as we understand more and more who we are, not only individually in Christ, but more importantly, who we are corporately and as we function as active members in the body of Christ. Okay, okay we've got a couple minutes if anybody wants to comment or... Any questions? All right, let me go ahead and close this out. Father, we thank you again for just the blessing of coming together as your people. Thank you so much for your word. Lord, we're just so encouraged and strengthened and convicted by it. We thank you that you are a faithful God 
Lord, that as we confess our sins to you, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And indeed, what despair there would be if we felt that we had to work this out on our own and atone for our own sin. It would be a futile effort, Lord, for it could never be done. But we are so grateful to know what our high priest has done on our behalf. Thank you for bringing us into fellowship with him, with yourself and your spirit. And thank you for giving us to each other. And Lord, I pray that we would come to recognize how very important it is to be interdependent upon one another. Lord, we recognize that this is from you. So we're not making each other little gods. We're functioning in each other's lives as you have ordained as the body of Christ. Help us to be diligent to speak the truth in love and help us to be balanced in both of those as we do that, Father. Help us to have a ready word on our tongue for him who is weary, that they might be built up. Help us to admonish the idle and encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak. And help us to be patient with each other as we grow into the conformity in the likeness of your Son. So we need grace, Father, for this to be done. We beg for your Spirit uh, to work that which is pleasing in your sight. So, Father, even as we go now into the corporate gathering, we ask that you would give us attentiveness as we hear the Word of God proclaimed. May we read the Word of God together joyfully. May we pray in accordance with your Word. May we sing joyfully unto you who has done wondrous things for us. Pray for Pastor Jack as he preaches that you would enable him by your Spirit that in all these things your name would be honored, Father. We thank you for your kindness and your patience with us, Lord. We think of how you bear with us on a daily basis, Lord, with all of our sin and trespasses and our weaknesses and our shortcomings, and yet, morning by morning, your mercies are new. And we give you thanks and praise for that. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.